0: See this coming.
1: I Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. Home. I'm your host, Lindsay, and this is part two of a discussion of fundamentalism and the temple. And I'm bringing Anne Hatch and Benjamin Schaefer back. If you're just tuning in, you need to listen to part one of this where we talk about the history of of Temple Changes and Fundamentalism in the Temple. Anne, can you say hello? Hello, everyone. Will you, I know you did this on part one, but will you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. Um, My name is Anne Hatch, and I was raised in the LDS Church, and I started looking into the changes in the church in the 1990s, and I stopped attending the church in the early 2000s, and I joined the uh, Christ Church, which we have a nickname of The Branch, and there I've held several callings and still do, but currently my major role is as Temple Matron. I've been the Temple Matron since 2013.
1: And your branch, your your um, church is a polygamous church, right? I mean, that's something that we haven't really talked explicitly about.
0: It is, actually. And interestingly enough, when we had the missionaries from this church come to our home and they invited us to a few meetings where we were living at the time and um, I knew right away that it was a church of of polygamy and my husband was like no 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 I'm just looking for the power in the priesthood and and the restoration of all things and you know getting things back to where they were before they were changed this isn't polygamy and I'm like dude this is polygamy."
1: yeah it's kind of hard to leave that one out kind Um, of is so so we also have Benjamin Schaefer, who is returning again. And Ben, can you just tell us about yourself?
2: Hi, I'm Benjamin Schaefer. I was also raised in the mainstream LDS Church, uh, where I served for quite some time. I I served a mission. I was sealed in the temple. I also became a temple worker in the LDS Church in the Taipei Taiwan Temple, and then later in the Saint George Temple. And I was also a seminary teacher for the church. But um, about ten years ago, I converted to Christ Church, the same church that Ann Hatch is the Temple Matron in, and um, since then I became a 70 in Christ Church, and I've done a lot of a lot of writing and study into church history, both before leaving the LDS Church as well as after, and I'm an attorney, and I work in Spanish Fork, Utah.
1: Well, thanks for coming back on, and it was funny because we were just off off the air, and I was like, hey, I, I need to take a break. I need to go get a Diet Coke, and, and Ben said, you know what? We're going to have to have a talk about Diet Coke. And I was like, oh, great. A lecture. Another lecture about how I'm going to die of brain cancer. But then I forgot, Christina Rossetti and I, especially Christina, Christina's come up with this challenge. She's a Catholic scholar. She's been on the podcast a month. She's a good friend of mine. And she said, I will get baptized t- into Mormonism if it's in a font full of dirty Diet Coke. So best <laughs> tell me, tell me about the advice that you wanted to give me.
2: Uh, so, yes, when I, I was like, oh, about Diet Coke uh, Ann Hatch and I were discussing whether or not it would be permissible and exactly how we could accomplish it to fill the entire temple font with <laughs> Diet Coke so that we could get you and Christina baptized. Is
1: is that how we do it? We just like do, do we just like get the two liters? Like I want to know the logistics of how this happens.
2: I, actually, the problem is, is that I did a few calculations doing the two liters, especially with how much they're going to froth when you pour them out was not going to work.
1: I, I didn't so, think of the frothing and the bubbles. Oh my goodness.
2: Yeah, total disaster. Um, and so we were thinking actually more about how we could get the concentrate so that we could have one of those soda mixers like they would have at a soda fountain and um, and a way in which we could hook that up. And actually, I, I don't know, we're thinking maybe we're going to get I you like guys back. this.
1: This is like the old like throwback to the Dixie Wine Mission oh. days where they're all stomping the grapes. We could just like... T- turn out baptisms and dirty diet coke at the same time with an emphasis on dirty yeah. because it would be human, you know, bodies in there. Are yeah, you listening so delicious and soda drink places we have a new market for you. Anyway, uh I love that. I love that you guys can joke about that and um not all fundamentalists are <laughs> straight laced well, patriarchs.
2: You know, if we can have either water or wine or whatever we have on hand for the sacrament, I don't see why we can't baptize in diet coke.
1: <laughs> Listen, hear me out. Uh, If you guys filled fonts full of wine, I guarantee your convert baptisms would skyrocket. You'd get the whole ex-Mormon crowd. They'd be so into that. Turn it into a a wine hot tub party. Can we do that? Is that too blasphemous now? (laughs) (laughs) You,
2: You know, back in the day when they would tread out the wine grapes, they called that a bath, right? So, yeah. Who knows? Maybe they did this in ancient times.
1: I like it. I like it. I would like to believe that Diet Coke was revealed. The ancients, just as it is now. So uh, I've got my Diet Coke. Let's get into the discussion of the temple. So you guys have a temple. Uh, Brian Hales has famously said that Mormon fundamentalists aren't actual Mormons because of a few things. One is that they don't have missionaries, and the other is that they don't have temples.
0: And your group has both. We do have both. We have um, full-time missionaries that are out and we also have full-time work missionaries that do service projects. In our community uh, for for our whole community or for individuals that need that plus we also have two temples in our church and so but we haven't always used our temple to the fullest extent and you know, we had one that we started building back in the late seventies and we utilized it, you know, off and on through the years, but we still did what a lot of other traditional fundamentalists do as well, and that is that we would have some sort of an endowment session outside of a temple, sometimes due to locality of where they were, or maybe because of health, you know, um restraints um for traveling and things like that. We've done ceilings outside. There was a ceiling of a sister to a family that was done in um a bedroom of a home where we flipped over a bassinet and put a uh, white blanket over it. And that that became the altar. And um, we had a ceiling there because we couldn't travel to where the temple was um, due to the help and location of, of the participants.
1: And this isn't that unusual. I mean, that, this is a throwback to frontier days where they, you know, they had the endowment house in Salt Lake city and they would try to travel up for it, but sometimes they couldn't. And uh, they had to, accomplish these things. As we know, Joseph Smith sort of did ceilings wherever he could, right? Right. Yes, he
2: did. I find it kind of interesting that if you read some of the history of where different endowment sessions were held, um Enzyme Peak was a place where they held endowment sessions. There's some indication that Merchant's flat, um, near between Beaver and Junction, uh, Utah was used as a temporary frontier uh place for for temple ordinances. There's also the um Spring City Tabernacle, it's usually called, which was an office of one of the apostles, and there's a whole variety of other places where it's likely that they um, that they performed a lot of these ordinances. But I think what that really does is it begs a deeper question, um, which is what exactly makes these temple ordinances valid? Uh, I think that there's been a lot of tendency to say it's the place that makes it valid. It's because the temple is sacred that Those ordinances are valid, but most Mormon fundamentalists as well as us would kind of take the opposite view, which says, no, the temples are sacred places only because of the power of the priesthood and the things that are done there. It is essentially the priesthood and the ordinances that make the temple sacred, not the place that makes the ordinances sacred. Um, And so in any case of need, it would make a lot of sense to perform that ordinance wherever it's necessary so long as you have the proper priesthood authority and keys and approval. Um, in fact, I also uh remember being part of a ceiling that took place um actually up here in Spanish Fork where we had an elderly couple who converted um to Christ church and then by the time that they had requested their ceiling to be done, uh, the husband he was he was dying I mean he was in very very ill health and he did pass away a short time thereafter uh, and so we prepared a room, we prepared an altar, we dedicated it for the purpose of that ceiling and then we performed the ordinance, even though we didn't have a temple here to perform it in.
1: Okay, so uh, that is one way that I think that fundamentals still remain flexible, and it's p- partially out of uh, necessity, but uh, it's interesting because we do have, like in the LDS church, we have a lot of stories of people in the global south, for example, who there's one temple maybe in their country or in an adjacent country, and they have to travel for Weeks to get there, or something like that. And you guys have found a way to, I guess, throw back a way that's always existed to make it more accessible for people. So, why don't we get into that? The one discussion that we just had on part one is this idea of literalness and symbolism. And I want to uh, dive into that first. I, I have a question for you guys because I mentioned on another podcast that. I was a literal believer in the LDS Church, so I really struggled with the temple. It gave me a lot of anxiety because I thought that I would literally have to remember all of it or they wouldn't let me in like the gates of heaven. Now, I understand that that's not the the whole, you know, interpretation by a lot of Mormons, but that is definitely what I understood. And because we couldn't really talk about the temple, I didn't know any better. So do you guys, uh, how how do you view symbolism in the temple? Am I getting, am I getting ahead of your timeline or is that okay? No,
0: no, I think we we view symbolism as a temple as somewhat literal and I really did actually appreciate your comments. I, I listened to that podcast and because I thought, you know, when I first started my temple experience in the LDS Church, it was very literal for me as well. And it wasn't until, you know, I started looking into things and reading more about the history of the temple and even books on symbology of the temple and I really love studying the life of Christ. And there's a book that was written by, I believe it was the Perries, I'm not quite sure, that talked about symbolism um, of Christ throughout all of the temple. And, and it was a very interesting book to me. And it kind of opened my eyes to things not being very literal, but being very symbolic. And in our temple, for example, in our font area, we have, you know, a design on the wall by the font that has a circle and inside the circle is a square and inside the square is a star of David. And we talk about what that symbolically means for us as an individual and how we move through our phases of existence, pre earth life, earth life and after earth life. And that's a symbol for us to kind of look at and remember who we are and what our goals are and where we've come from and We have all kinds of different symbolism in our temple. In fact, when we were building this temple, you know, my husband and I and our family were quite actively involved in a good portion of that process. And we got to, when we were called to be the temple president and matron, we got to help pick out things that we put in the temple. And we took that to be very serious. And I went and I studied a lot of things about teachings from Gerald Sr., from the the current prophet at the time, Brother Jerry, and I really took a lot of those to heart and I wanted to put those symbolisms and those teachings of of our fundamental religion into the temple and see how it related back in time through history. And, you know, we even we have you know, we have the Star of David in there, we have pyramid shapes in there, we have we have the in our temples and I know that some of the LDS churches do as well.
1: So wait, let me let me ask you a question about that really quick. Um, So you you have all this beautiful symbology that you've sort of crowdsourced from members, which I think is beautiful. It's sort of a throwback to the early saints building the temple. Um, What do you do in your temples? Is it the same thing as the LDS, so like baptisms for the dead, the uh, washing and anointing, ceilings?
0: We do. We have, you know, we do our baptisms. Our baptismal font for um, our church is actually a part of our temple, and so when you know, like, unlike a steakhouse has a baptismal font, or a meeting house in the LDS Church has a baptismal font, our fonts are in our temple. and we go there. We have a recommend process that we go through when we are baptized or or recommended for baptism, and um, then we go and we hold that baptism there in our temple, in that font. And for a lot of people, I think it helps them. To be more connected to the temple in that regard than just being baptized in and in, a, in a church meeting house. Through conversations that I've had with others, have, have they've told me that. But so we do those. We do baptisms for the dead. We also do rebaptisms, which is a concept that the LDS Church doesn't do um, anymore, at least. We also do washings and anointings, and we have an endowment session. We do sealings and there's other special meetings and classes that um, can take place in the temple as well.
1: That's that's awesome. Okay, so I think that that helps people. Let's talk about, I, I guess, where do you guys want to start with this?
2: Um, I don't want to step out of bounds here too much if the temple matron decided not to mention it quite, but there are other temple ordinances as well. They're just not as as often performed because they aren't as introductory. When we, when we talk about the temple endowment, for example, we talk about it as the first endowment because we do believe in set the second endowments. Um, there's also the law of adoption, and which is a priesthood sealing ordinance. Um, and then, of course, there's also the sealings for the living and the dead, uh, including the sealing of parents to children. And all of those things are also all taking place in the temple, um, even though uh, we don't always talk about them. We do believe in all of the ordinances since the beginning. Um, I think that, however, there is a big difference. Um, So, Lindsay, since you asked where I want to start, I'd say that there is still a big difference as to the way that we view ordinances and the purpose of ordinances than in the mainstream LDS church. Um, For example, you mentioned that when you were a very literal believer, when you first went to the temple, you, you weren't motivated necessarily by the symbolism. You were afraid that... If you couldn't memorize it perfectly, that you would bring down the judgments of God on you because maybe you got a word wrong, um, something like that. Now, of course, we do encourage memorization, but um, we believe that there is certainly a larger point, And that, that larger point is all about the covenants because and, – and we view that somewhat differently as well because we believe that covenants, they bind us to God. They teach us something about the nature of God. And – breaking one's covenants is something that all of us to one extent or another are going to do, right? It's not about perfection. We believe that grace is somewhat synonymous with time. We each are given a season of grace. Grace means that we all have plenty of time to decide what we actually want out of these things. And we're going to fall. We're going to make mistakes, but we're going to repent. And so we don't have, I think, that same feeling that Everything has to be done with exactness from the very beginning or you're under condemnation. There's more of the sense that you're learning like a child learns and you're going to make a mistake. so what is the endowment about? Well an endowment is the gift right It's to be given something what we're given in the endowment is knowledge and power so that as we struggle, we learn we have the tools necessary to overcome not rather than the assumption that once we get to this high point, we are never supposed to make a mistake again. And that reminds me of one of the other big differences is the concept of ceiling cancellations. So, for example, in the LDS church, there's this idea that they, the leaders of the church, they have the authority to change the ordinances and even change the effects of the ordinances, that, that essentially it's under the control of them, not, not God, so that they can simply say, well, we're going to cancel this ceiling and reinstall that ceiling and so forth. Well, we don't believe that that is really in the in the control of man what we do is we go forward and we make the covenant but God never breaks his covenant we might break our covenant right that's how a covenant gets broken but God is never the one who 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 breaks that covenant so in in Christchurch we do not do sealing cancellations because we believe that whatever is sealed in heaven cannot be undone so that doesn't mean to say that people can't get out. Right, it doesn't mean that you're bound, that you have to stay married to someone, especially if they're abusive or something's wrong. Um, But it does mean that God isn't the one who's going to break the covenant. You're not going to get this from the top down telling you what to do. You are going to be the one who makes the decision. You're going to say whether or not the covenant is broken.
1: And that's more in line with like Brigham Young's idea, right? He was Brigham Young was pretty, I I guess this word would fit, progressive on divorce for for the time because he was confronted with. There were a lot of unhappy women on the frontier married to these men who oftentimes were rugged frontiersmen who, you know, or sometimes the women were abusive, too. So he was more flexible. And it sounds like you guys are more in line with that.
2: That's right. In fact, we have this idea that um, if a man breaks his covenants, his wife or wives can be sealed to a man of higher priesthood. And that that essentially is up to the choice of the woman. It is not something imposed from the top down.
1: Okay, let's talk about that doctrine for a little bit because I—that's actually a doctrine I—I I don't like because I feel like I've seen it play out in really pernicious ways, in like the FLDS, for example. So this idea and, and actually, it plays out in the LDS too. You know, I've talked to people who have gone through a faith crisis, or they've talked to their sick president, and their sick presidents like divorce your wife if she's losing her faith. You divorce her, and of course, it just dip- like that's not a policy. It's just like an interpretation. But in the FLDS, uh, Warren Jeffs and even his father took this to a whole new level where they were reassigning families. And, and I understand that that's not what you guys do, but that's why the doctrine makes me uncomfortable because I think it has the like potential to play out in those ways.
0: I, I agree with you, Lindsay, and that makes me very uncomfortable when people talk about reassignment. I, I loathe that concept myself. And I think that there are many stories of abuse and unrighteous dominion. In the restoration, all of the restoration. It's not just the polygamous church. It's not just an LDS church. It's everywhere in our society in modern day, and it's even in other religions as well. It's it's a very sad, almost fact of life. And you know, we try very hard to assure the woman's right. Women in in the branch, which pleased me um, upon joining, have quite a say in. Their role in life and in their families and and in the church itself, with even teaching the theology of the of the church and, and and learning about the gospel and what they want to do or not want to do. We have we have single women in the church. They believe in the church. They believe in the gospel. Um, maybe they started off married here. Maybe they didn't, and they're still here. And uh, maybe their husbands and a the rest of their family have moved on, but they stayed behind because this is where they felt they wanted to be, and that was their choice.
1: I I know that we're not talking about polygamy in your group today. That's not the focus of the episode, but you might want to give like a little uh, bit of information for people because I know that you're talking about how this, this doctrine empowers you as a woman, and I know out the gate a lot of my listeners are going to say she's She's in a polygamous church. How can she argue for that? And so do you want to kind of talk about how I mean, does your group do underage marriages? Do you guys marry family members? Do you do family reassignment? All of that kind of stuff.
0: Um, okay, so we don't do family reassignments and we do not do underage marriages. We actually encourage all of our children to to grow up, to graduate high school, to, you know, have that normal life, to get an education. You know, whether it's, you know, an in information technology like myself or you want to be a teacher, you want to be a massage therapist or you want to be a nurse or whatever. You know, we encourage higher learning and we also encourage a lot of, of you know, human right in that process. And we don't say, oh, you know, you're 18 or you're going to go turn your name in and get, you know, find out who you have to get married to no we you know i mean maybe some parents are talking to their kids that way but overall you know we say when you're ready come and talk to us and we have a few single young women in their 20s that are just not ready for that yet and so you know we we do live um a polygamous lifestyle but we believe that if someone wants to join a family in that regards you know they have to be an adult they need to be this with their eyes open and they need to understand those things in no way shape or form are we encouraging you know any underage marriages whatsoever, or any type of abuse, and in fact, about five years ago, um our prophet went to the Lord with this actual very topic um again, and he received a revelation that that basically states that abuse and unrighteous dominion will not be tolerated at all, and that um Heavenly Father wants it understood that all of his children are precious to him and that if a man wants to take a wife he must prepare himself first to show himself even worthy that he will treat her as a queen and as a daughter of God and that he will not be abusive and if there is abuse you know there are many ways about going you know to go about getting out of that situation and we in fact as a as a file leader with my husband we had a family who was, we were working with and the husband was abusive to her and her children, and, and you know, we encouraged her to get out of the home, to, you know, make some choices, to learn what it's like to be, you know, on your own, and to, you know, decide if that's really what she wanted to be in that situation or not, and she left. She had a restraining order against him, you know, we kind of helped her through this process, and then after some time away, she went back, and then for a while, she actually left him permanently
1: yeah so thank you I, again we could dive in further to your group's relationship with polygamy but i, I did want to point that out because there's still this this stereotype that all fundamentalists are like you know the prairie dress wearing no internet and it's i mean you guys are talking to me on the internet right now and you're very modern uh normal like i would meet you on the street and i wouldn't be like oh those are polygamous which i'm pretty good at doing by the way i can point i can figure out what group everyone belongs to pretty well but yeah i think that that's important as we're talking about these ideas because i will say i i feel like your theology on the temple is one of the most progressive in the community save the community of christ which i think is uh probably the most progressive because it's really open so uh what did we talk o- on next?
2: Um, so I, I definitely want to back up some of what Anne is saying there. And and I think it harkens back to my earlier point about the idea of who breaks the covenant. Is it man or is it God? What w- We just don't believe that this has to be imposed top down. If the priesthood actually represents God, God's unchanging. God's not the type of person who's going to use force or compulsion in the least degree, right? Um, Doctrine and Covenants section 121 talks about how the priesthood uh, cannot be used in the least degree of unrighteousness; otherwise, it's not the priesthood at all. Um, and so, it really has to be first and foremost. it Always has to be about individual agency um, that we each have that free agency. Otherwise, no covenant that we could make with God would would really be of any meaning.
1: But that one's so hard because when you talk about agency, like when you grow up in a system of it, you know, this is one of the the main critiques of polygamy that that I have, which is. If you grew up in a system, and I realize that this is not this doesn't apply to either of you because you both converted. But if you grew up in it, how how much choice do you have if that's really the only worldview that you've adopted?
2: Well, well, I- can I
1: can
0: I jump in here first, then? I'm sorry. Um, so in our family, um, one of our sons recently was married, and um, he married a young woman who grew up into this church. In fact, she's a third generation branchite. You could say. And she thought about leaving the church for a little while. And she really struggled with her testimony. She went out, she explored things. And I think it helped empower her to decide what she wanted to do. And she decided on her own to come back and to, you know, see where she belonged. And we were blessed to be able to have her join our family and marry our son. And, you know, I believe you were there for that wedding, Lindsay.
1: Yeah, I was. And, it, and I think the reason why I'm so complimentary on your group is I have been to your, would you call it church headquarters? Is that a fair? Sure. I've been to your headquarters, your community, and it was really lovely. I had, a, I had a good experience in it. And, you know, I'm kind of criticized for my interactions with your group as being too nice to polygamists. But I, I just find that uh, you seem very familiar, like like you are people that would have grown up in my ward. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not, uh, I think that's why we get along so well because there's something very small town and familiar about your group.
2: And on a note that I think is perhaps, well, I think it's a little sadder is the fact that um, the people who did grow up in it here, a lot of them, about half, but maybe maybe a majority, a lot of them do leave. Not a lot of them stay. We're we're a church of about half converts and half um, those who grew up in it. Um, and how do you treat your converts?
1: Um, and and I, before you answer, like I think that just what I know about you, I think, okay, how about I tell – I'm going to say what I know, so it's not a commercial for your group. I have heard both things. I've heard people have uh, positive experiences about leaving and people that have had negative experiences, and I think that that would – I find that pretty consistent across most groups. I mean, the FLDS and some other groups are really harsh when you leave. But I, isn't it true? Is it true to say that it depends on the attitude of the family too? Because there's not like an institutional issue with it.
2: I, I'm sure it does. It's it's very individual. Everybody has their own path, and everybody has their own different reactions. And so, yeah. I mean, I've heard some stories that d- disappoint me as well. I think, well, why would their family? treat them that way, and others where, you know, it's very, very clear that family is family. It doesn't matter what you believe. If I could go back to talking a little bit about the temple, though, as well, because I think there's some really interesting things that this touches on. In the mainstream LDS church just this month, though I guess it was the beginning of the month and this is now the end, with all these changes, there was a, a lot of that push, I think, grew out of a very good motive to try to prevent abuse to try to um, get rid of gender inequalities um, and all of those types of things and the whole idea that women would hearken to their husbands. Now, since we perform an endowment that, I mean, as we've mentioned, is many, many hours longer and and contains what we believe to be essentially all of the uh, vital elements of the endowment all the way back to Nauvoo, uh, we do still have separate covenants for men and women. I'd like, to, I'd like to ask Anne to talk to us a little bit about what is it like as a woman? In the branch, in your role as matron.
0: Well, you know, I think it's it's very interesting because you know, in the, in the LDS Church, you know, when you call a temple president and temple matron, it's like, you know, you're you're one step to royalty, and and here it's just Dan and I, you know, it's it's brother Dan and sister Anne, and you know, we're we're very down to earth in everything that we do, and the thing that that I like the most. Is, and what I want to talk about is, you know, women's role in the temple, you know, we use priesthood authority, we pronounce blessings, we perform ordinances, you know, and yes, yeah, some of it's through callings, and some of it's, you know, because we were set apart to do those things, but when I received my setting apart as temple president, or temple matron, right after Dan was set apart as temple president, I was told that I would hold the priesthood in conjunction with my husband to fulfill the needs that Heavenly Father wants taken care of in his temple. And, you know, in the temple, we learn that Eve is a priesthood title. And in um, some branches of Mormon fundamentalism, you'll hear about Sarahship and the law of Sarah. And that is also a priesthood title and function. And, you know, Eve, back to the Adam God doctrine stuff, Eve was a queen and a priestess before coming to this earth. She helped, you know, create spiritual children with Adam, and she came here to earth to create physical bodies for those children. She came to teach them the gospel. She came to, you know, help them through this life and and to counsel them in their lives and also to be her husband's co-partner in this journey. And I think it's important to remember that we are taught that Eve is a priesthood title. And, and, you know, like I said, in here, in, in our temple, the women's role, you know, we use the priesthood authority to pronounce blessings and to perform these ordinances for other sisters. There's no brethren in those rooms with us when we are doing those things. Um, And, you know, it can be a very beautiful thing, and also, you know, with, with my husband, we we make different assignments, and he asks me to do things, and he'll give me charge over stuff, and, you know, for example, you know, a lot of this, you know, temple preparation stuff is is something that I've kind of compiled, and That he lets me run with, and I I am the one taking charge of a lot of those discussions, and he's there, and he participates, but it's kind of empowering to me to be able to have these experiences, and, you know, we can receive personal revelation, and we can listen to what our Heavenly Father has in store for us, and we can help other sisters through this process. And to me, it's very beautiful, because we're not just harking to our husbands. You know, we are taking a big part of this and moving alongside with them and listening to our Heavenly Father and blessing the lives of others through our work.
1: So, Anne, can I ask you a question? Because one of the issues that a lot of LDS Mormon feminists have is this idea that women women in the priesthood is a huge issue but this idea also that when we're, when we're told that they want you know when women feel called to it and they say i want the priesthood and we're told well you already have it in the temple um can you can you act out your priesthood outside of the temple
0: you know that's a very interesting question and and just last night my husband and i we were driving back home from a couple hours away so we were talking about some of this stuff and i said you know In a way, I hope she asked me something similar to this, so I'm very pleased that you did because there was a time when we were living in a different place, and we were the only members there, and the closest other brother with the priesthood was like six and a half hours away, one way, to drive to us, and my husband got very sick, and, you know, we called and we said, you know, can you do a blessing by proxy, and they were like, well, yeah, we can. Um uh let's set up a time you know i'm I'm really busy quite right at the moment let me give me five ten twenty minutes or whatever and so he called back and he said this brother said you know brother dan sister Anne, you know i i just have this feeling that i needed to go to the prophet with this because you know you are so sick and you need something very special to help you with this and the prophet said for your wife to give you a blessing and I was, you know, jaw dropped and mouth wide open going, uh, you know, LDS background. No, yeah. no, no. You were no. from the
1: LDS. I was just going to say that. <laughs> we're like, you can't do that. <laughs> I
0: know. And so, you know, and I was like, and my mom, she was like, well, this is new. And because my mom lived with us just for history, um, you know, she's she's a widow and she lives with us. And at this time, she, she'd been living with us for about a year. And she's like, you can't do that. And I'm like, well. We're going to do it because that's what the prophet said we're going to do. And so, you know, he, he sat down the chair and he handed me the oil and he walked me through this, you know, the, the starting, you know, of the blessing. And after that, it was whatever, you know, that came to me. And I can tell you that the power that I felt through giving that priesthood blessing to my husband it was a very sacred, very special moment for our, for him and I, and it taught me a lot about the gospel and about our Heavenly Father and how much He loves us. And here, you know, the prophet talked about me and talked about having faith in me as a sister, as a woman, that I could do this function for my husband at this time. And and I started really looking into. You know, the blessings of the children that were given in the early days of the church by their mothers. And, you know, believe it or not, you know, back up, I I could probably get in some trouble for this, too. But my daughter, in my first marriage, I I didn't marry a um, a Mormon. He was um, a Southern Baptist. And he didn't obviously hold the priesthood in the LDS church. And my daughter got very sick. She was wearing a very high temperature, 104, couldn't break it, tried everything. And I remember hearing Heavenly Father's voice or a voice in my head that I related to either him or to, you know, our Savior saying, put your hands on her head and bless her. And then take her to the hospital and she will be healed. And I did. And I, those two circumstances in my life, those two situations, the one with my daughter when she was very ill, and then fast forward, the one with Dan where he was very ill, I didn't use oil on my daughter, but I can tell you that by the time I pulled into the parking lot, her fever was gone. And it was such a remarkable experience for me. I I journaled about it. And my daughter has left the LDS church. She's traveled the world and went from Buddhist to Hindu to you know, where she's at today, which is, is her deal, but, and I support her in her growth and her journey through her life, and she said that where she's at today, she told me that she made this, this recent change of where she's at today because of things like that that I did for her, showing her that women have an active role in life and helping others. It's not just up to the men, and so, you know, fast forward, here I was giving this blessing to my husband in our home with oil that is only supposed to be done by a priesthood holder of the Melchizedek Priesthood. And I learned how to give that blessing. I was instructed by our file leader how to do it by using my husband's priesthood, but also using the priesthood of God. And that's how I worded it. And it was a beautiful thing. And I can tell you my hands can still shake right now from the feeling that I had of doing that and from the power that i felt myself grow with and you know i i'm a file leader in the branch church and mostly that is a male calling it but my husband and i were set apart as co-file leaders and we complement each other we help each other and um, a lot of the times the people that that we're file leaders for call me first before they call dan and it has nothing to do you know anything against Dan? I don't think, but you know, and it's it's not necessarily trying to say that I'm better or not better, but they call me and we talk about things.
1: I don't I don't know Dan at all, so I'm gonna say it's because you're totally
0: better. There you go. Um, Benjamin knows. Maybe he
2: could. Yeah, you know, that's right. Um, well, I do call <laughs> Dan first usually. That is true. Um. But um, we love Dan. Dan is great. I think that the point, though, is is about that complementary nature that we're supposed to have. And actually, I think that this goes back to another really important point about uh, the original temple ordinances and the ways that the LDS Church has recently changed them, is that I believe that, as far as I understand the full and original endowments, is that the entire pattern is supposed to teach us relationships. And that's what I feel really has broken down in the LDS Church and why so many of these changes, I don't want to say necessary, but I guess they became necessary, is because of this um, a loss of this understanding of relationships. Um, in the temple, one of the other things that was taken out that a lot, not a lot of people are talking about nearly as much in the LDS Church that was just taken out is um, a lot of the returning and reporting, a lot of the repetitious language, they called it, has been taken out. Um, and people will say, "Oh, well, I guess that's not very important. It just makes it longer." Um, quite the contrary, I I believe that that pattern essentially is one of the most central and most sacred and most important teachings of the entire temple endowment because it teaches us that there are these constant complementary relationships between God and man, between husband and wife, between parents and children. And if and by not having women covenant to their husbands or not having Um, all of the returning and reporting language, I feel that what we're missing um, is a rather important, uh, dare I say, fundamental doctrine about how we relate to each other. And I think that that becomes necessary only because the covenant was already broken and changed. Um, It seems like the church is trying to fix it, and then they're trying to fix what they fixed, and then they're trying to fix what they fixed again. And it just gets more and more broken, I think, unless you go unless uh, you go back to the root, which is to understand the fundamental nature of all these relationships, that they are not about unrighteous dominion or force or compulsion. They're not about domination. They're about these complementary relationships of love and support. Um, And once we lose the sight of that, I think that it it starts doing harm. And that's, that's the kind of harm that the church was trying to address by making these changes, except that I see that as just making it even more broken in the sense that now, how are they ever going to get back to that original doctrine that I think would empower both men and women in understanding God and their relationship to him so that we can come into his presence, which is kind of the whole point of the endowment.
1: And do you want to say something? Do you want to respond to that?
0: Well, I mean, I, I agree with what he said there. And I think that it is for me, you know, very, It's a very sacred thing and that we need to, you know, really look at why we're doing these things. And for each person, our path is is our journey. It's our sacred path that we're going down. And we have to decide how we're going to, you know, mold our lives to do those things. And for some women, I think that it can be more difficult than others because of the situations that they may be in. And I don't want to take away from any of that, but at the same time, I want to say that i really I really love where I'm at in my life right now. I think that I know you know you've talked in the past about women bailing in the temple, and i I think that it can be complicated for some women, but I think that you know in the history of of veils in different cultural you know, ceremonies that we have, you can see that these things are, are very much a part of religion in general. And I think that if we look at our temple in the LDS, you know, restoration world, um, there's a lot of those same things that carry through from one religion to another religion. And I think that it's, it's very interesting to, to look at all of these different things and look at the role of women in, in the gospel of Christ you know, Christ himself, here's another part of our tenet and our doctrine, we believe that Christ was married, you know, by now, that shouldn't be a great shock to most of your listeners, fundamentalists believe that, but, um, but we do, and, and Christ had a lot of following of women in his life, and I think that they played a great role in his life, and that, that he used them as his counselors, and I think, for me, in my experience with, with my husband, and with, my calling, you know, I am a co partner with him. I'm equal. He I'm very blessed to have that in my life because I I know that I didn't have it with my first marriage. Um and I'm very blessed with Dan because, you know, he's very considerate about some of those things. You know, we're not to be we're to serve God first, you know, and it doesn't matter who we are and what religion we are in. We can all find different things that are common ground. But, you know, we need to treat these things with reverence and with purpose and find the benefit for ourselves in our journey.
2: For clarification, Anne, can I also ask um, about how that relates to women and veiling with the current um, things going on? And how, what, what's your view on that?
1: Wait, wait, Anne, before you answer that, I just want to, as a side note, um when you talked about Jesus and his relationship with women, that just reminded me. So I wanted to make sure that both you and Ben know this. There are two interesting things I think you should definitely read. Uh, Sammy Galvez is a queer Guatemalan activist who wrote this beautiful paper on queering Jesus, which I know would make people feel uncomfortable in fundamentalism. But this idea on uh, queer and Jesus being radical and it's beautiful and then there's also this whole discourse on the feminine symbolism in in Jesus's narrative so anyway that just reminded me but back to veiling
0: <laughs> thank you for those references I'm writing them down really quick um yeah back to veiling so I mean you know do you do it or do you not do it and it's it's really interesting because you know there's there's a history of this for many years Christian churches in the West attended to the tradition of covering their heads for things of a spiritual nature. Many Orthodox Christian women cover their heads when entering churches and monasteries and other places. My mother tells us a story in her early childhood where they wore scarves in the church. And Russian women wear head scarves before entering their churches. You know, um, women all around the world wear head coverings as a part of their religious experience. And some of them, I believe, probably are forced, which bugs me, I think it should be something that we choose to do. And I really liked Christina's point that she made, um, I think, on part one of the last episode, where, you know, women go and they learn and they choose to do that. It's their choice. And I think it's it's important to have choices. You know, it should be of our own free will and choice. And, um, you know, I love the veil. Um, I didn't always. I can tell you I didn't always. And I'm, I'm going to share a little bit of a, a couple of experiences with you to to kind of hopefully, sh- you know, let you guys all understand where I'm coming from. So in 2008, we were having um, an activity, and we had a big tent up, and um, I sound like a tent revival Christian person now. But we had this big tent up, and we were doing this activity, and um, it was attached to a garage. And my husband and I were sitting at a table in the garage, and he was wearing a welder's cap without a brim. And I don't know why he took the brim off, but um, he did. And he, so he's wearing this, this welder's cap. And um, sitting at the same table with us were a few other people, but one of them was our prophet. And um, he looks at Dan, and he turns his head sideways, which he always did when he would get revelation. And he turns his head sideways. And he looks at Dan, and Dan's almost like, uh-oh, what, you know? And and he says, you know, we need to wear a head covering. Us brethren need to wear a head covering. We need to wear them all the time. He says, I'm going to do some more prayer and seek some revelation on this. And this was in 2008. And he came back and said, you know how the Jewish have the kippah? We need to be doing something similar. And so since 2008, the brethren have been wearing a head covering. Um, a lot of them are the kippahs, some of them are the, they called kufis. Ben, is that the right word? Oh,
2: yeah, that's I'll the right word. The, the k- okay. kufis are more Muslim usually. And I actually recently got myself a Russian skufia.
0: Yes. It looks pretty cool on you too. But, um, you know, the sisters then, um, one of the sisters sat at the table and said, well, if the men are supposed to wear a head covering, are the sisters supposed to wear a head covering? And I kicked her under the table. <laughs> like, shut up. Don't ask that question. And, um, you know, he, he says, I'll get back to you. And he came back and he taught in in a sacrament meeting not too long after this that, um, yeah, good choice then, a um, Kippa. So he he taught that, you know, he wants the brethren to take an active role in wearing a kippah when we're doing, you know, when they're in priesthood meetings, when we're in sacrament meetings, when they're giving prayers, when they're giving blessings, you know, we should be wearing kippahs. And he said for the sisters, it's optional. You can cover your head or not cover your head. And that's fairly progressive thinking on, you know, his part. He's like, it's your choice. But he didn't make it so much a choice for the brethren at the time. And, you know, I had a really hard time with it. I It's, it's hot, you know, and now I'm, I'm going through menopause. I don't need added stuff to keep heat in my body. And, you know, I've, I've struggled with it, you know. And so sometimes I wear it and sometimes I don't. And we had a sister join us in, in the church probably, gosh, you know, five so years ago. And she was... She struggled with it at first and she went and she prayed about it and she came back and she said, You know what we're supposed to be covering and she covered and she's no longer in, in our church and, and actually you've had her on a podcast before, but um she taught me an example of, you know, what it's to be like to go and get your own witness and to do this. And here recently I would say probably in the last year, I've really been focusing more on wearing a head covering, you know, it's, it's a nice little, kind of like Christina explained, you know, it's kind of lacy. It's not overwhelming me. Um, I don't pull it down over my face. I just cover my hair with it. Um, and I wear that when I pray, I wear that when I go to the temple, um, before we put the veil on in the temple, um, you know, I'm going to start wearing that there. I've, I've got a witness for myself that that's what I need to do. And um, and I wear it in our sacrament meetings, And so I think that women veiling is a very important part of our life, not just in the temple. But it it is a symbology that has kind of shaped modern culture and change in some regards. But when we really understand some of the symbolism behind it, you know, of why people veil. I mean, Moses veiled when he went up to speak with the Lord. Jesus veiled when he... Came down and talked to the people as to not destroy, you know, them with his countenance. And, you know, I think it's more of for the benefit of the person wearing it. And it's an individual choice. And I'm really grateful that our prophet said it's an option for sisters. Pray about it and get your own testimony and do a note. And I can tell you, not everyone, not every female in our church wears them. It's about 50-50.
1: That's so interesting I, I actually didn't know that, so I feel like I'm learning a lot about your group that I didn't know before
0: <laughs> well good
1: um and can I ask you another priesthood question that just reminded me, do you guys do uh some of the early like like the early pioneer women would do like blessings for pregnant women uh women's circles, those kind of things
0: okay, so the I can't think of what that blessing's called either and um, I was just talking with it with about that blessing the the blessing for women who are having babies. we don't necessarily do that, but we have a part of our washings and anointings where we incorporate that into our washings and anointings, so we don't necessarily do it, so say that there's a pregnant woman who hasn't yet been to the temple, so she might not have had that part and Of course, she can go get a priest of blessing. um We have done prayer circles where women have joined hands and went and and prayed together for things for our families and for our specific sisters. but, you know, in a home. But we don't necessarily do that pregnancy blessing thing like they did in the early days of the church. We have it more incorporated into our Washington.
1: That's an interesting way to incorporate that. And I think it's something that a lot of women feel lacks in the LDS.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very beautiful thing and it can help bring some peace to you when you're struggling. I know a lot of women struggle with with having children and I I was one of them. I was only able to carry one of my children of my own. I've I've helped raise, you know, several stepchildren um and foster kids, but I only birthed one of my own and I I often have thought what a beautiful thing it is to have that now, to that I didn't have it when I was, you know, in my 20s having children or my 30s.
1: Well, um we're about in an hour, and that might be a beautiful way to end it. But do you guys want to give me closing thoughts on what you want to what you want people to know about your
0: temple? Yeah, I'd like to start. If you don't mind, I'll let Ben end. Um, you know, here's the thing about our temple we have we have actually I, I misspoke um, earlier when I said we have two temples. We have two opera well we have two temples that we would consider as operating kind of temples, and then we have another third temple that was used. Um, It was set apart and dedicated as a temple, but it was only used um, for one session. Due to location, we were unable to um, continue using it, but we still own that property. But the thing about them, each one is different. So, I mean, if you Googled up our church, you'd probably end up seeing a pyramid-shaped temple in, um, you know, southern Utah. And, again, that goes back to symbolism. And what our temples mean to us is more of, you know, like – when you look at someone on the outside, you, you know, you, you hear that you can't judge a book by its cover, but, you know, you also, you can't judge a temple by its cover either. The LDS temples are very ornate and beautiful and peaceful, and, you know, they all have a certain look about them, right? And our temples are both very unique and different looking, and from the outside, looking in, if you come from a Brighamite church, you would go, that's a temple. <laughs> and it's about what's on the inside. And I think that what we need to remember and what I would like to convey is that our temples are a projection of our inner self. What is inside those temples is very beautiful. We have some very beautiful furniture and some very beautiful drawings and paintings and statues. You know, maybe they're not huge statues, but we have some and and some things in there to help, you know, remind us of where we are and who we are. But it's really about, on the outside, we might look very plain and ordinary, just like the next, you know, guy on the street, but it's what's on the inside, and what we learn and what we do with that, and how we treat other people, and I think that that's, that's something I'd, I'd like to say as a takeaway for the branch, is that, you know, we are trying to be a better person, to better our communities and the communities around us, and to to help everyone find their path in life, in this tree.
1: Thank you um, for sharing that and expressing that so beautifully. Ben, do you want to give us some closing thoughts?
2: Yeah, I, for me, this opportunity to go to the temple was really one of the main reasons why I became part of Christ Church. Uh, seeing the changes in the LDS Church, I did see that as signs of serious apostasy. I saw it as losing so much that was of so much value for so many thousands of years, so much symbology that was lost because modern cultural changes simply had lost an understanding, I believe, of truths that have existed since the beginning of the world. And my desire to go to the temple, even my desire— when I was in the temples in the mainstream LDS church, I remember feeling like if only I could have more of this, if only I, there was more understanding, if only there was more symbology, I wonder how much more I could learn and, and desiring further ordinances is really what led me into looking outside the box in the first place, outside the mainstream LDS church. And that search, I believe in Christ church has been abundantly rewarded to me the the ordinances that we perform are everything I've ever read about in all of Mormon history is incorporated in one way or another and and feeling like I felt like that would have been enough at first and but now to realize that there are continuing revelations that have expanded it even more so that it wasn't even just everything I'd read about in history Literally in Christ's church, it's even more than that. And, and so I guess that my takeaway is that if we can gain greater understanding, I think that we, we're always going to look for more. And that's what I believe is revelation. Whereas the less understanding we have, we always want to take away the things that make us uncomfortable or take away the things we don't understand. And that's what I believe is the process of apostasy. And we're kind of always, I think, in a balance doing one or the other we're always headed in one direction or the other. And so I would encourage everybody um to look for more because I think that there is more beauty in looking more deeply until you gain even greater understanding of more symbology. It just it just keeps expanding that way and I think that that's the path that leads to that leads to God.
1: Okay, well, um thank you and thank you for helping me understand better your temple. Uh I think I think you guys were really vulnerable and shared some very personal, sacred things. And I appreciate that because it's kind of unique for me to have such an intimate discussion with uh, faithful people about the temple because it's just not really in the culture that I experienced. So, yeah, that was really nice. Okay, so we'll link to your blog, Ben, um, where you've written about this before a little bit. And then is I it, to. I'm sorry is it fair to call you a temple nerd can we say that i mean
2: I'll, i'm okay with that
1: okay so ben shaver <laughs> temple nerd Anne and ben you guys usually go to sunstone in the summer right
2: yes i'm looking forward to it
1: i was just telling yeah. them that they need to submit papers and needs to talk about women and blessings and i really want ben to talk more about adam god and the king Fullet discourse i think that would be a fascinating discussion So, anyway, uh, you guys, thanks so much for coming on and uh, sharing your perspectives. Thank
2: you for having us. Thank you very much.
1: The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.